Well, as we continue today in the season of Epiphany that we've entered into, which is a season, as Matt said, of time in the year in which we focus specifically upon the revelation of Jesus Christ, not just as a great prophet or teacher or counselor or comforter or miracle worker or friend, but more than that, as the divine Son of God and as the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of anybody who comes to Him from anywhere in the world the Savior of all comers. All right, as we continue with that season today, we come to Luke chapter 3 in our study of the Gospel of Luke, and with it to yet another story about John the Baptist, and we've seen several and we know a lot. We know that this guy's life and ministry are completely here at the beginning of this Gospel intertwined with that of Jesus. We know, for example, that these guys knew each other, maybe really well. I mean, not only were they contemporary, about six months apart in age, but they were, in some sense, relatives. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a relative of, well, Elizabeth, the mother of John. And in fact, they knew each other, at least in some sense, even in utero, in that we saw that story in which Mary, while carrying the Lord in her womb, entered into the house of Elizabeth, who was yet pregnant with John the Baptist. And when Mary's voice reached the ears, not just of Elizabeth, but of John, he leapt inside of her. Profound connection between these guys. It's amazing. So not only are they contemporaries and relatives, but um, in addition to that, both of their conceptions, as we've also seen, were supernaturally enabled. Now, differently, but both of their conceptions were supernaturally enabled. And then in addition to that, they were both supernaturally announced in advance to one or the other of their parents by the exact same angel Gabriel who came from before the presence of God to announce the conceptions and the coming births of each. Kind of cool. And both of their births were celebrated, albeit very differently. And I want you to consider the differences. This is where it departs a bit. So Jesus' birth, for example, was celebrated by heaven, and we know that because heaven couldn't contain it. It literally broke out into the night sky here on earth in the angelic host, if you will, and they proclaimed the birth and the celebration of the birth of the divine Son of God and of the Savior of the world, of all comers, and they proclaimed it to who? Because it's really significant. They proclaimed it to shepherds of all people. And I put it that way because, you know, I mean, a lot of us have played the shepherd in the Christmas play over time, and we thought that was cool. That's because we don't know anything about shepherds. It was not cool to be a shepherd. Shepherds were the lowliest. They were the outcasts. They were the people you did not want to be or even be around. They were barred from the temple and thus in that system, if you will, from God himself or so they thought until he peeled open the night sky. If you had a lawsuit and you went to court and your only witness was a shepherd or two shepherds or 500 shepherds, they would dismiss your case because they wouldn't hear the testimony of shepherds. Think of the generalization of that. Like, was there not one honest shepherd? Their reputation was so bad that all shepherds were precluded from testifying. When Jesus is born, the Son of God and Savior of the world... Okay, the heavens can't contain the joy. They burst open into the night sky, and they burst open to them. Interesting. But not just them. We've also seen the story of the Magi. We saw that this past Tuesday at our Epiphany service, and we saw the Magi coming. Now, what's the significance of the Magi? Savior of the world. They're not Jews. They're not ethnic Jews, are they? They're a thousand miles east or thereabouts. And yet God leads them as well. All the way 
to the place where Jesus is. Some kind of a manifestation. I don't know what it was. I can't imagine it was an actual star. I mean, you know, like, how do you figure that out? You know, these are tiny little dwellings, and they're all connected. So you're going to look up into the night sky and go, I think it's above this one or 4,000 in that direction. I mean, it leads them to the door, if you will. These foreigners to the door. What a birth. And, of course, it was celebrated by his parents. But let me tell you who it was not celebrated by. It was not celebrated by his extended family. It was not celebrated there in Bethlehem by whatever family they had there. It was not celebrated when he was conceived in Nazareth. It was not sort of known in the hill countries around either or both of those little towns as anything but scandalous if it was known at all. Not so with John. Whereas Jesus was somebody who was... Listen, little more than the illegitimate son of a naughty little girl in the minds of the world and the village and the people that he lived with, from whom absolutely nothing was expected, guys. Nothing. Well, John was very different. John's birth was celebrated by his parents, who incidentally happened to be married, and in that culture, that really, really was a big deal. But not just married, pious His father was a priest. His mother was from a priestly line. These were righteous people. There's a Hebrew word used to describe these kinds of pious people, and it's applied to this couple. They're amazing. They're well-known. The only mark, and it's a big mark, on their reputation was barrenness. I'm sure more than a few people in their family, including them, and in their village, and maybe in the surrounding hill country of Judea, kind of scratched their heads every once in a while and said, Lord, why would you not give a child to this couple? Why would you allow this woman and this man to endure such indignity? Which is, And that's what that was in that day. And not only were they barren, but they were beyond childbearing years. And so when Elizabeth conceives, guys... What are the biblical stories that these people are thinking about? They're thinking about Isaac. They're they're thinking about Samuel. They're thinking about these amazing, miraculous stories of births out of barrenness and even out of barrenness and infertility caused by, well, just being beyond childbearing years. And so then what's the expectation? Because Luke's already told us. He said the announcement of of this child's birth was celebrated, yes, by his family, yes, by his village, but throughout all the hill country of Judea, it was celebrated, and everybody was asking the same question, and rightly so. What then will this child be? So if Jesus was known at all, it was because it was a scandal. If John was known, and he was, seemingly, it was for all the right reasons, and great things were expected from John, and great things were delivered. This guy's amazing. I mean, it may help you to know that before everybody was following Jesus and buzzing around Jesus and writing checks to the ministry of Jesus and wanting to interview Jesus and going to Jesus.com to get series of messages after series of messages to find all the answers to all their questions, following his blog and for $9.99 getting a What Would Jesus Do t-shirt, before all that was going on, John was the guy. He was the big hit. He's the one everybody was following and buzzing around. Do you know what Jesus himself says about John? And obviously, Jesus is accepting himself from this comment, but only himself. Of all the men born of women, John's the greatest. John's the greatest. So John was a big deal. And to prove that, well... As you look into the text, you realize that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people left the comforts and conveniences and provisions and safety of their home and traveled 
out into the Judean wilderness to go visit John, to go hear John's preaching, to go be baptized in his baptism of repentance. And if you have never seen the Judean wilderness, let me just tell you, you got to really want to go out there to go out there. I mean, it is one thing, like many of us in this room have done, to get on a really nice air-conditioned bus that's well-maintained and you know it's not going to break down and it's got a cooler full of water in the front and, you know, point the vents on you and look at it as you fly by at 60 miles an hour through the window. That's one thing. It's another thing altogether to pack up your kids and measure out all of your provisions and make sure you've got just enough water and head out on a camping trip that takes you, what, like three days, four days, five days, just to get there. It is barren, it is rugged, it is treacherous, it is brown and dead and dry. It is not a vacation destination. And yet thousands went out there to see John. John was a big deal, and Jesus, however, is infinitely larger. But the deal is that of all the people in all of these crowds who are flocking out now to see John, who are enduring all of that to go see him, John alone is the one who realizes that he's not the big deal but that Jesus is. And so here's what he does. He postures his entire life and ministry in such a way as to point us, them, and anyone else who will listen to what it is that he has to say to Christ. It's awesome. And his message, in a nutshell, if I can just sort of sum it up in a little phrase, is that, guys, there is a road that leads to Jesus, a path, a way. And it has a name, and its name is repentance. So we pick up our study today, Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, with a list of dignitaries. Luke says this, he says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Trachonitis, Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. <sighs> okay, What happened? The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, and where did it come to him? It came to him in the wilderness. And why did it come to him in the wilderness? Because I think, at least, that this is massively significant. Because the wilderness in this story, and for that matter, in John's whole ministry, represents the exact opposite of everything that that long list of dignitaries Luke just gave us represented. And so what that means is that Luke doesn't start this story by giving us all of these names in an effort to date John's ministry. He's not coming to us and saying, all right, if you want to know when John did his thing out in the wilderness, well, that's easy. I mean, it was during the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar and Pilate. You know about him. Well, he was the governor of Judea and then one of the Herods. He was, he was the Tet... It's not what he's doing. He's parading these people in front of us to bring to my mind and to your mind what they represented back then and what they represent now. There are things that don't change. This is one of them. What do they represent? They represent power. They represent wealth. They represent comfort and affluence, but not just those things. They represent corruption, injustice, oppression, and death. They represent the entire world order, which does not change the way the world works, the things the world values. And so it's sort of like John, right out of the gate in this story, is coming to us and saying, okay, guys, with all of that in mind, I want to talk to you today about repentance. And I want you to hear this message of repentance coming out of the mouth of John the Baptist, because he's like the best at it. And he's waiting for you out in the wilderness. And so whereas I haven't yet gotten to the point, Luke's saying, where I'm going to describe, well, John, is exactly what repentance entails, here's a clue. It's going to require you to turn your back 
on the way the world works, on the things the world values, so that you might face the Lord, so that you might head out to a place of life. Because John is not just in the wilderness. Guys, John's at the Jordan. He's in the waters of the Jordan. What does that represent? Well, it represents the very waters that the people of God in the Old Testament were made literally to pass through in order to come up into the promised land. It's curious, isn't it? It's sort of like he's looking at the world and he's going, here's the way the world works. Here's what the world values. Here's what you think by nature is the promised land. It's actually the wilderness. And out here is life. Because John isn't the only one in the Jordan, as we'll see at the end of this passage of Scripture today. Jesus is in the Jordan, and we'll talk about why. But he's waiting for me and for you there. And it's through faith in Jesus, as we follow this road called repentance that leads to him, that we are washed, that we're made clean, that we're made new, that we're brought into the family of God as his sons and daughters, his beloved sons and daughters, incidentally, with whom he is well pleased because of Christ. And it's through faith in Jesus that we inherit the true promised land. A lot of stuff going on. Very, very cool. So the word of the Lord came to John. It came to him out in the wilderness, which represents everything that the world doesn't. And then Luke tells us, beginning in verse 3, that John then took that word and he went out into all of the wilderness, all of that region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of what? Because here it is, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And again, here's why, because that's the road to Jesus, which is essentially what Luke now says by citing the prophet Isaiah. For he says, for as it is written, the idea here being, as it is written about John the Baptist in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, in which 750 years before John the Baptist and or Jesus was born, Isaiah tells us what John would be. It's the same language that John uses about himself elsewhere. But listen to the prophecy. John would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness. There it is. Prepare the way, or you might say the road, of the Lord. And make his paths, or his road, what, circuitous, curvy, rough, Up and down, straight. And then he tells us what that requires. It requires that every valley of doubt and of fear and of insecurity that lives in our hearts, that that road would otherwise have to find a way to navigate down into and through and then back up and out the other side of, be filled in. It requires that every mountain and hill of sin and of guilt and of shame that we ourselves honestly, have piled up in our heart, that that road would have to somehow otherwise find a way up and over or around or through or tunnel under or whatever, be made low. It requires that the crooked things within us become straight and the rough places within us become level ways. And then Isaiah says that all flesh in which that happens, you ready, shall see the salvation of God. And since we're curious, we're interested, we, would, we want in on that deal then the question is, well, then how does that happen? And the answer to that is through repentance. And so the follow-up is, well, then what is that? I mean, what does it look like? What does it entail? Repentance, first of all, as John, I think, will now teach us, requires us 
to be honest with God about ourselves and specifically about our sin. And I use that language in that particular way because that's the language of the rhythm of grace that we've rolled out for this year. That's the language. That's one of the components of personal worship that you're to be doing every day. That's one of the things that we do every time we gather in corporate worship as Matt gets up near the beginning of the service and he says, hey, now we're going to be honest with God about ourselves. Why? Because repentance isn't something that we do once. It's like, yeah, I repented, you know, back in 96. So we'll just check that off. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure that I repented in 96 too, but, but it's a lifetime of repentance. Why? Because here's what my heart does. I don't know about yours, but here's what my heart does every day. I wake up every day. In which direction am I oriented? Toward the Lord or toward the ways and things of this world? Man, it's like a gravitational pull, is it not? What is following Jesus? It's getting up every day, he says, and dying. Dying to that pull. Dying to those desires. Dying to the way that you would otherwise live. Because you know what? The ways of the world work in the world, and I happen to live here. Don't you? The things of the world... Everything in the world and almost everyone come to us with and say, in this is significance. In this is life. But it's not life. See, Luke has already postured the world as the wilderness and the ways and the values of Christ as the place of water. So anyway, first of all, repentance requires us to be honest with God about ourselves as a matter of life, as a matter of course, day by day and week by week. And now what I want you to see is just how deep that honesty goes. And you see it in the words of John the Baptist. Now, I want you to imagine that you're living back there, and you're living in one of the villages, and you hear that John the Baptist, and he's out, you know, by the Jordan River, and he got to go through the Judean wilderness, like, to get there. And so you pack up the kids, and you get everything good, and you measure out your supplies, and you got all your water and all that stuff, and you've carefully calculated, and you endure all the discomfort and the sweat and the risks and the coyotes and the whatever else that you're subjected to as you have to travel through this rough and rugged and treacherous place. And you get all the way there, and you're just in time for church, you know, and and you sit down in the front row or wherever you're comfortable, and you can't wait for the 9 o'clock service, and John gets up, and then here's his message. It's two sentences long. This is it, at least initially. John said, therefore, to these crowds of people that turned their backs to the world and came out into the wilderness to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, you bunch of poisonous snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God to come? You know, like you throw a tomato at him, but you're worried about your provisions for the round trip. You know, you got to go home, so. Think about that statement. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And don't distance yourself from these people. Don't think that they were any different from you. In fact, you know, as I thought about it, I thought, well, they excel us in some ways. I mean, think about what they had to endure to get there. So they at least were in touch with their own brokenness, with their own emptiness, with their own sinfulness, to the point where they were driven out of their comfort zones through the wilderness 
to John. Now, I thought about that in comparison with like what I had to do to get here this morning. And it's almost laughable. I mean, I know like if you're a single mom or even just a mom, it can be a pretty Herculean effort. Some of you with physical problems, and you know who you are, I watch you walk from your car to the door and stand and catch your breath. From the inside of the door, halfway to your seat and stand and catch your breath. From your seat or from that place to the rest of the way to your seat where you sit for 10 minutes and catch your breath. I'm not trying to minimize what it took some of you to get here, but I'll tell you, for most of us, we woke up when our little alarm went off. We hoped our wife, not going to lie, would turn the fan off because it's a little bit cold in the room. Since she didn't, we got up and did that and then turned off the little white noise machine, which is awesome. Awesome. Went down the hallway to the kitchen. You can smell the coffee. Why? Because it's already been brewed by this magical machine. And it was glorious. Opened up the refrigerator and all my marvelous, I mean, our marvelously preserved food and made ourselves breakfast. Went back to the bathroom, took a nice hot shower. It's leisurely. I mean, you know, it's not Monday. You don't have to get up that early. And then opened our wardrobe and looked at how many different sets of clothes we had and had to make a call. If you're a guy, that was a little easier, not going to lie. Whatever's closest. Yeah, this goes. Done. Then you walked, what, 10, 15 feet to your car? You got into that. That was uncomfortable. Not Tooled on over here in about 10 minutes listening to music. Walked 60 or 80 feet from your car to the church. These people are not weeping for us. They're not. They excel us in that regard. And John calls them a bunch of poisonous snakes. Worthy of the wrath of God to come. And he calls them a bunch of poisonous snakes, knowing that the snake in the Bible is the very emblem of evil and death, and knowing that they know that the snake in the Bible is the very emblem of evil and death. And the truth is, as you work that through, it's kind of hard to identify with that description, isn't it? You've got to descend pretty deeply into yourself before you realize that, hey, you know, maybe John's right. Joseph Epstein says that we all live on at least three levels. Number one, there is the person as he or she appears in public. Number two, there is the person as he or she is known to intimates, which include family and dear friends. Number three, thirdly, there is that person deepest of all who is known only to him or to herself where all of the aspirations and resentments and fantasies and desires and much else that is not ready for public knowledge reside. What John is trying to get us to see with his really honest and very direct language is that that's the level that we need to descend down to if we truly are going to repent. But I'm going to tell you that is a painful descent (laughs) 
And here's why, because it's a descent that requires you necessarily to walk right past all of your excuses and all of your rationalizations and every person, place, and thing that otherwise you typically like to take all of the damage that's been done in your life, some of which has been by your own hand, and blame it on, and all of the damage that, in fact, you've done in other people's lives, and blame it on. It is a painful and yet necessary descent. It's a place of no excuses. The bottom of the staircase, there's like a mirror, you see, and the image, well, it's fairly serpentine. So, first of all, repentance requires us to be honest with God about ourselves and specifically about our sin. But then secondly, repentance requires a real commitment to change, meaning the kind of commitment that actually that actually results in change. For again, Luke says that John therefore said to these crowds of people that turned their backs to the world and came out into the wilderness to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, you bunch of poisonous snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he said, bear fruits. Now keep in mind, trees bear fruits. We'll hear that word in a minute. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. All right, so at the first service, Dr. Anna Steele was here. And she's a friend of mine and a friend of some of you. And she's a linguist, among many other things. She speaks six languages. She's Greek, so she's got that down. And I talked to her, and she said, you know, that word fruit, the word really is the word for a watermelon. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Because there are some fruits that you can't see on a tree from a distance. Would you agree with that? Like you got to walk up and kind of rifle through the, the branches and look, you know, around the... Oh, yeah, there's a barrier or two here, you know. No, 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 no. It's a watermelon. You can see it from a long distance. That kind of fruit. But what does a watermelon contain? Seeds that reproduce itself. And water that is sweet. It's tasty. It's refreshing. It gives life. We're to produce fruits in keeping with repentance that reproduce everywhere we go and that bring life to everyone who tastes them, takes them in. It's a marvelous image. So John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He's like, listen, I appreciate your verbal confession of your sin. I appreciate the emotion, obviously, that you're bringing with it. That's a wonderful thing. Those are tears of repentance. Those are words of repentance. And that's not enough. I want to see actions of repentance. I want to see the fruit that it bears in your life. Show me the difference that your repentance makes because that's, well, that's repentance. And then he gives us examples. Fruits? All right. Well, let's talk about a few. He says to that crowd, and it was very poignant for them, but I think it can be poignant for us too. He says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He's just dropped the you're a viper deserving of the wrath of God on them. And you know, what's their response? Hey, you know what? We have Abraham as our father. So what are they doing? What are they saying? They're in essence looking around at everybody else, all the non-Jews, all the Gentile nations, all the Gentiles living among them. And they're saying, hey, Abraham is our father. Ethnically, we are the people of God. We have the law of Moses. We've been given his oracles and so forth. And so if the wrath of God is coming on anybody, those are the ones that need to worry about it. But he's called them vipers. And he's going to wreck that argument in a second. But as I worked that through, I thought, well, wait a minute. We do the same thing, just kind of in a different way. We compare ourselves with ourselves and we judge ourselves by ourselves to be eh, maybe a little bit better than everybody else. 
And so then we comfort ourselves with the idea that, all right, well, I mean, you know, if God's going to bring His wrath on anybody, I mean, let me give you some names, you know. (laughs) These guys should be nervous. John's saying, no, you should be nervous. Unless you have found safety in Jesus. He says, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, he says, that God is able, now follow this, from these stones, he's looking at rocks laying around them, to raise up children for Abraham. What is he saying? He's saying God can take dead things and make them alive. He can can animate the inanimate. He can take hearts of stone and out of them make children of Abraham by faith. It's what he's done for us. And then he says, and even now the axe is laid to the root of trees. And again, why is that profound? Because trees are supposed to produce fruit. And what kind of fruit are we talking about? The fruit of repentance and not little berries, but like, you know, like watermelon fruit, good grief. I can see it from a mile away fruit. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees and And then he says, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear this good fruit of real repentance is cut down, and this is terrifying, (laughs) thrown into the fire, and now the terrified crowds are convicted by this. They're not offended. They don't run from it. They just lay down in front of it. The Spirit of the Lord is on this man and on his preaching. And so they ask him, good grief, then what shall we do? And then he gives some further examples of the fruit of repentance. And notice what he gives. John answered them and he said, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Now I want you to think that through for a minute. That's striking. He's not coming to me and to you and saying, All right, listen, let's sit down and we're going to talk about your assets. Let's look at your portfolio together. You have this real estate holdings and these stocks and bonds and you've got this equity in your life insurance and you've got this in your savings and you've got this disposable income and this is how much it costs you to live and this is how much you're bringing in and all that stuff. I just want to meet with you and see if there's any way that we can squeak out some generosity in here. He's coming to somebody with two changes of clothes. Two. And saying, oh, you have two? Take one of them and give it to the naked guy standing over there. He's coming to somebody with just enough food for today. Oh, you, you've got enough for today? That guy over there? Bring him to dinner. <laughs> There's really something to this turning thing, I think. It's kind of unnerving. So then we read the tax collectors, who, by the way, work together with the soldiers. I say that because soldiers are next. Tax collectors were given a taxing district. Rome said, you need to collect this much in money, but you can collect as much as you want. And they used the soldiers and their power over the people to collect far more than they needed. They created their own little kingdoms, many of them. And tax collectors also came to be baptized. Now think about who's coming to John and really who's coming to Jesus. (laughs) We've got shepherds, We have Gentiles. We have tax collectors. Incidentally, Matthew was a tax collector. Who else surrounded the Lord? Prostitutes, the demon-possessed. It's a beautiful crowd. The tax collectors came also, and they said to John, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to collect. And then the soldiers also asked him, 
And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages, which then begs the question of what do you and I do with the power that we have over other people because there are other people over whom we have power. Are we givers or takers in that relationship? Do we disadvantage them to advantage ourselves or the other way around? There's fruit, you see, and it looks like a melon and it's full of seeds and it gives life. So repentance, first of all, requires us to be honest with God about ourselves and specifically about our sin. And then secondly, it requires a real commitment to change, the kind of commitment that actually brings about change. And then what does it bring? We've said it already. It brings forgiveness. When you wade down into the waters of the Jordan where you find Jesus, and that's where we find him, as we'll see next. And you're honest with him. It brings forgiveness. I kind of had that beautiful image as I was as we were worshiping before the first service. You're wading down into the waters with Jesus, knowing that in those waters he's going to want to open the door to your heart and descend that staircase, you know, with the one with the mirror at the bottom. The one that's so painful and hard to go down. And it is. It's like it's so psychologically traumatic to own it that you don't even want to go there. You run from it. You flee from it. And yet you need to go to it. You need to look it in the face and own it. And so what does the Lord do? I think He takes us by the hand and walks down the steps with us. I think He encourages us along the way. Okay, I know that you usually use that as an excuse. You know what? Not really. Not for all of this. That rationalization, that's not... That doesn't cover it all, does it really? That person, those people, your parents, whatever. Let's let's go down to the bottom of it all. Let's look into the mirror. Let's face the viper. And then know this. And here's one of the ways Jesus described what he did on the cross. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent. Hear that? in the wilderness. And those who looked on the serpent were healed by faith. So also must the Son of Man, so also must I, Jesus, be lifted up on the cross, that all who look to me in faith might be healed. He became the serpent that we are, that he might put it to death in every single one of us and free us from it that we might look a whole lot different in the mirror because of His work. It's a beautiful thing. So it brings forgiveness, and oh, and then also in Christ, we gain the true and eternal promised land in the end. And Jesus, as I said, does meet us in the waters. We see that in verses 21 and 22. Luke says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. Kind of catches you off guard because he's told us it's a baptism for the repentance of sins. And so you're like, well, but he's God and he's sinless. Why did he have to repent? He didn't have to repent for himself. He had to repent for me and for you. Because the reality about every one of us is that even our repentance is flawed. Even our repentance is tainted with sin. Even our repentance is incomplete. It's insufficient. It's inadequate but it's adequate in Him. And so then this Jesus who was born to live for us and to suffer for us and to die for us and to be raised for us, this Jesus even repented for us that we might be fully forgiven and made clean and new in Him. It's a beautiful thought. It's a beautiful reality. 
And so then when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him visibly in the form, in the bodily form like a dove, and a voice which is clearly the voice of God the Father came from heaven. And what does it say? Because it's an epiphany season message. You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. And so here's the beauty of the gospel. When you by faith turn your back on the world, the way that it works, the things that it values, and descend into the waters of the Jordan with Jesus, but not just into the waters, but you let him take you by the hand and you walk past all your excuses. And you get to the bottom of the stairs and you see the mirror and it's, you know, kind of serpentine. Okay, in fact, not kind of. And you are honest with him about who you are. You confess that as sin and you claim his sacrifice on the cross for you. And you commit by the power of his spirit who fills you. The spirit comes in response to repentance. We see it here with Christ. He comes in a community with God's people to resolve to live differently, to die more and more unto sin, to live more and more unto righteousness, to get up every day knowing your heart will just gravitationally pull toward the world and to crucify that, that it might instead embrace the ways and the values of Jesus day by day. You're given that inheritance in the true promised land, having been washed and brought into his family. All right, here's the benediction of God to you. If that's you, here's what he says to you as well. You are my beloved son, or you are my beloved daughter. And notwithstanding all of it, because of Jesus, with you, I am well pleased. I am well pleased. So there's a road that leads to Jesus. It has a name. Its name is repentance. I'm just going to ask you a couple questions and then we'll pray. Number one, which way would you say that you're facing in life right now? Are you facing the world? Sorry, those of you over here. My wife sat over here the first service. I'm like, are you, are you facing the world? Or are you facing, you get it, the Lord? Which way is your heart directed? What values, things, ways do you embrace? And are you willing to acknowledge that actually that's the wilderness? The waters of the world are like drinking sand. Secondly, when was the last time that you were really honest with God about yourself? Because again, it's not something you do once in 1996, check it off the list, you're done, but it's a, it's a daily thing, walking by your excuses, owning who you are, and giving it to the Lord. And do you see the fruit of that repentance in your life? Again, and maybe it's a berry for you, you know, but it's supposed to grow into a a watermelon, really, that plants seeds and gives life. So think about those things. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for our Savior and for the humility and grace that we find in Him. Lord, He doesn't beat us up with what we see in the mirror. He doesn't take us there to persecute us. He doesn't take us there to make us feel lowly or bad. He doesn't bring us there to fill our hearts with self-loathing, to chastise us. He brings us there to heal us, to take it away, to undo what we've done, to wipe away our stains. 
to wash us clean, to fill us with His Spirit, to make us members of His family, to secure our eternity. Oh God, and then to work in us by His Spirit to bear fruit. Fruit in keeping with repentance. Fruit that results in seed for more fruit and sustenance for a world that is really living in the wilderness. God, do these things in us, we pray. And do them through us also in Jesus' name. Amen.